Chava Willig-Levy here with this week's second installment of Celebrating in honor of the Americans with Disabilities Act's 31st anniversary, The Quest for Disability Rights. I hope you'll enjoy this abridged chapter from my memoir, A Life Not With Standing. The chapter is entitled Invisible, Inaudible, Inanimate, Anonymous. As a young girl, hospital stays had me hungering for home, but one destination had me eager to fly the coop. My ninth birthday long behind me, I had yet to attend school. Except for my synagogue's afternoon program, home and hospital instruction was all I knew. Finally, one spring day, after years on the New York City Board of Education's waiting list, I was admitted to a special education class. Finally, I exulted, a chance to go to school like everyone else, with everyone else. I was wrong. Each weekday morning, my special ed classmates and I got off the segregated school bus entered our segregated classroom, and, except for occasional visits to the physical therapist's office or the separate handicapped, quote-unquote, bathroom, stayed there until the segregated school bus brought us home. We never mingled with able-bodied kids, not in the classroom, not in the library, not in the cafeteria. Even though it was just down the hall, We were never allowed to eat there, an insurance risk, we were told. Of course, as a wheelchair user, I never had access to any part of my school that wasn't on street level. The building lacked an elevator. Truly, I didn't mind being a wheelchair user. What I did mind was being a wheelchair. The year was 1962. I was sitting in a yellow, handicapped school bus, the kind equipped with a hydraulic lift and absolutely no shock absorbers. My class was on its way to the Museum of Natural History. After battling traffic for over an hour, the bus driver pulled into the parking lot and drove toward the museum's rear and, surprise, only accessible entrance. Before he had a chance to turn off the ignition, a museum guard rapped authoritatively on the bus's windshield and pointed to a far-off sea of yellow, where school buses apparently were required to park. Full of self-importance, our driver lowered his window and bellowed in the most mellifluous Brooklynese, I gotta park here. I got wheelchairs. Now. That was a difficult shock to absorb. I knew something was dreadfully wrong with being defined as an inanimate object. I wanted to call out, you mean, I got people in wheelchairs. But I was only 10 years old. I didn't know how to speak my mind. One degree less disconcerting than being inanimate was being invisible. By the time my 11th birthday arrived, my euphoria over saying goodbye to 
home instruction's lonely invisibility had evaporated. Replacing it was indignation over special education's own brand of rigidly enforced invisibility, which in the early 1960s meant segregation. In the 1970s, the buzzword mainstreaming came into vogue. It irked me. And by then, I knew how to speak my mind. Why make up a new word, I would rant, when a perfectly good word already exists? Integration. Invoking the Supreme Court's 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision, I would posit, if separate but equal school segregation based on race is illegal, why can't we see special education's separate but unequal system as a comparable inequity? I have many more tales out of school to tell, but I can't resist telling a tale not of my own, a tale from the classic television series, The Twilight Zone, entitled Eye of the Beholder. For 20 of the 25 minutes Rod Serling needed to weave his riveting story, the bandaged face of a hospital patient is the only one in view. When we meet her, she is about to endure the plastic surgeon's ninth and final attempt to correct, or at least diminish, her severe disfigurement. As the last bandage is about to be removed, the camera swings around. The doctor exclaims, no change, no change at all. The camera cuts back to the patient. For the first time, we see her face. It is ravishingly beautiful. Instantly, the camera cuts to the doctors and nurses. For the first time, we see their faces. They are repugnant, pig-like. For me, the most powerful moment in this drama occurs well before that climax. The doctor tells his patient, there are many others who share your misfortune, people who look much as you do. Now, one of the alternatives, just in the event that this last treatment is not successful, is simply to allow you to move into a special area in which people of your kind have been congregated. And the patient, her face swathed in bandages, cries out, people of my kind? Congregated? No, you mean segregated. Eye of the Beholder first aired in 1960. Perhaps the eight-year-old I was then would not have appreciated its profundity. Still, I wish I had seen Serling's masterpiece before the shame and rage that segregation engendered had taken their toll. During my adolescence, I learned that for people with disabilities, several American aphorisms had corollaries. Out of sight, out of mind reminded me of segregation's perils. Out of sound, out of mind, I made that one up, reminded me that being inaudible was just as dangerous as being invisible. I bristled at the notion that people with disabilities should be neither seen nor heard. 
Educational segregation not only made us invisible, it made us inaudible. Although we could attend our school's talent shows, we were never allowed to participate in them. I knew I had a good singing voice. It hurt being barred from sharing it. And because I was a child, it hurt having no voice to demand a voice. Not surprisingly, the adult I am today bristles when people assume that I can't speak for myself. A waiter, for example, might turn to my friend and ask, what does she want to eat? Still, were it not so infuriating, inaudibility can occasionally be funny. Wishing to sing her praises, I once asked a physical therapist for her supervisor's name. She was delighted to provide it. Amy. What follows is a transcript of the phone call that I had placed. Good morning, Rehabilitation Services, Orthopedics Department. Hello, may I speak to Amy? Who are you calling for? Amy. No, who are you calling for? Um, Amy. No, who are you calling for? Amy. By this time, the woman on the line was exasperated. So was I. Wait a minute, she snapped. Then she asked incredulously, are you the patient? Only then did I realize that who are you calling for meant on whose behalf are you calling? The notion that the patient, quote unquote, could be calling on her own behalf, never dawned on her. The invisibility, inaudibility, and anonymity of my special education days may be long gone, but every now and then, I still get to be inanimate. Fifty years after my school bus driver hollered, I got a puck here, I got wheelchairs. A friend and I attended a dazzling concert at Carnegie Hall. At its conclusion, we proceeded from the lobby to the sidewalk. A man several inches in front of us said to his companion, let the wheelchair pass. I smiled and said, you mean let the woman in the wheelchair pass? The man retorted, well, you're a part of it. No. I replied, it's a part of me. I hope you'll join me actually on Wednesday, not Thursday, for our final celebration of disability rights. Signing off for now.